So as I sat here, I was realizing I was nervous. <laughs> Who knows how many of these talks I've given over the years. And then I thought, well, that's interesting because I'm nervous because I have an identity, right? I have an identity of I'm a spirit rock Dharma teacher and I'm supposed to give good talks. <laughs> so that's what we're going to talk about tonight is what happens when we get identified. You suffer, just in case you hadn't figured it out. Uh, so when my grandson was little, every now and then he'd walk into a room and he'd put his little hands on his hips and he would say, what's going on in here? <laughs> and I always loved it when he did that. He's 14 now, so he's not quite so... He's amusing in different ways. <laughs> but that's our question too, isn't it? It's a wonderful question, and I've thought about it a lot over the years. And here we are, and sitting and giving our attention to our experience and really asking the question, what is going on in here? What is this experience of being human? So as the retreat goes on, you know, almost at the end of the second week now, and every time I come in the hall, it's so quiet. It's just so astoundingly quiet. And everybody's beginning to look a little younger. And... Layers are beginning to peel off. We're hearing about that in the interview. And each person is becoming, I think, a little more present, a little realer. Mindfulness is settling in. Some of you are very settled because you've been here sheesh, nearly six weeks now. And it's visible. It's visible, it's palpable, and it's very, very sweet. And... I thought, maybe this is a manifestation of that Zen koan that says, what is your face before you were born? What is your face before you were born? Maybe those layers are peeling off. So I often think of practice as being a bit like cultivating a garden. And, you know, those of you who are gardeners know, we, we work hard to prepare the soil and we pull the weeds and we try to figure out the right balance of sun and shade. And of course, if you're gardening in California these days, you pray for rain. And there are a lot of conditions required for a good garden, and not all of them are in our control. And different plants have different requirements. And in practice, there are many conditions for awakening and for finding freedom. And our job, your job and my job, is to do our best. And each one of us is unique. Each one of us has our own particular path towards that goal, even as we also have many things in common. So during this retreat, we've been following as a theme for the retreat, the Buddha's teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, both in our talks and in the instructions of the retreat. And we've had some great and wonderful additional nourishment from the teachings and practices of the Brahma-viharas. And the two really go hand in hand, that place where wisdom and compassion are really the two wings of the practice. And the Buddha tells us, he says, this, this practice of mindfulness, he says, is the most direct path to realization. He says this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And then in a wonderful bit towards the end of the sutta, he talks about, you know, if you do this for a year, you know, then that will really be, will bear fruit. And then he says, no, if you do it for six months and then five months and four months, and finally he comes down, he says, even if you do it for a short time, seven days, very, very, totally, utterly mindfully, then that will be very beneficial and will bear great fruit. So this is good news, right? We've all been 
working hard at our mindfulness. And so we've talked of the foundation of the body and what it is to penetrate the body with our awareness and learning to rest our attention on the breathing and the body sensations to create, really it does create a sense of a real foundation for our mindfulness. And then we've explored the world of the Vedana, the feeling tone of our experience, learning to allow that to be just what it is, it's pleasant or it's unpleasant or it's neutral, and to use it as an anchor for our mindfulness. And then we've explored the foundation of the mind itself, giving our attention to the mind states that arise, to the condition of the mind, and even to thoughts themselves. And um, the other night when Winnie was talking, we gave a lot of care to the difference between mindfulness and allowing um, what was there and the more psychological processes of working on some of those states. So finally, we've come last night to um, the last of the four foundations, which is that of the Dhammas, which is, I think of it as the list of the patterns that we begin to see in our practice that are the things that help us and the things that get in the way. So these are the five hindrances, so desire and aversion and restlessness and sloth and torpor and doubt and the five aggregates of clinging, and the six sense spheres, and the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths, and the eightfold path. So all of this is to figure out what's going on here. What's going on here? What is this event that I happen to call me? You know, and because we've noted that um, we all clearly get ourselves into a lot of difficulty, and we've certainly been hearing some of yours as you've come into the interview. And we also know that there's an enormous amount of suffering in our world. And our stories about who we are, or who they are, are often misguided and sometimes just wrong. And they cause so much suffering. If you think of all of the stories that people have created about men, those men, or women, those women, or people of color, or people with gender and sexuality issues, or people of a different class or a different ethnicity. So we create these stories because we all create them. You know, it's not just them that create those stories. We create them. We cre- and we create them for ourselves sometimes. And then we lock ourselves into a very particular way of seeing ourselves and or seeing others. And we don't look outside those stories. Joseph used to say that we build houses of our stories and then we inhabit them and we look out through the windows. So the Buddha invites us in this sutta to go really deeply into our experience and to try to see clearly what actually is happening here. So we come to a retreat like this to explore and to take time to look at this thing that we call a person. And it's not easy. It's a really rough trail sometimes. And I was writing, I was thinking of a trail uh, not far from where I live on the Big Island and uh, goes into uh, fairly close to one of the active volcanic vents. And so it's been very popular as a place to kind of get in where you could get up close for people who like to get up close to things like volcanoes. And um, I took it once and it was the most astoundingly difficult trail I think I've ever been on. It had big boulders and it had roots and it was muddy and it had huge cracks in the earth that were very deep so you had to jump over them and um, it was one obstacle after another and it went this way and then it went that way and then it went this way and then it went that way. It was really, really tricky and I think our practice is like that sometimes. It feels like we're hacking our way through the jungle but every now and then 
as we go along, we begin to see something a little differently. And we go, oh, you get a little bit of a view of where you're going, a little bit of a different perspective on what you're doing. And again, that's what we hear a lot in our interviews. People, you know, so often people come in, I always love it when this happens, and they say, I never saw it quite like this before. I've seen impermanence, or I've seen this or that, my suffering, but I didn't ever see it quite like this. So when we're here, we're actually kind of cleaning the lenses of our perception so that we can recognize the truth of our experience, this very strange experience of being human. I think possibly one of my all-time favorite retreat poems is this really short one from Galway Cannell. He says, whatever what is is, is what I want, only that but that. Whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So that's what we're looking for. What is? What is? So when I was a kid, probably just like you, I drew pictures of my world. We all do that. And often the sun was round and it had little rays coming out. And it was yellow, it was always yellow, and the sky was always blue. And um, sometimes, if it was the night sky, of course, there were the moon and the stars, and of course, sometimes, rather improbably, they were all up there together. And the earth was kind of like this, it was green and smooth, and trees were very simple affairs, they usually had kind of a trunk and then a round thing on top that was green. And um, everything somehow in those pictures the most part, at least in my pictures, seemed pretty stable. And of course, from my perspective, if I was in the picture at all, I was in the middle of it and um, kind of the center of it. And usually, if you think about it also, a little disproportionately large, you know, almost, <laughs> as, almost as big as the tree. <laughs> and of course, we know now, don't we? I know anyway, the sun isn't yellow. And in fact, the sky isn't blue, actually. And there aren't any nice orderly rays coming out of the sun. And trees are extraordinarily complicated. And not only that, but there isn't just one sun. You know, there are billions of galaxies and trillions of stars and planets. And it's said that if you're looking through the light of even a relatively small telescope, you are basking in the light of at least a trillion stars. Isn't that amazing? A trillion stars? I can't even think of how many a trillion is. We are a very tiny planet in an incomprehensible cosmos. And of course, one of the really interesting things, although it doesn't have too much to do with the Dhamma, is none of that was known when I was a child. We didn't know what was out there, really. We were only beginning to suspect it. So this thing that calls itself me, I, am a beyond minuscule event in a huge cosmos. Not at all the picture I had when I was a child. A very tiny participant in the evolution of time and space. And interestingly enough, we also know now that we are mostly space. If they took, if they somehow sucked all the space out of you, you know, they took it all out of all of our being, what would be left in each one of us? It would be about a teaspoonful of stuff. That's all. It's like, what? How can, is that, huh? Really? Really. (laughs) So as we begin to practice deeply, we do begin to sense that our simple world and the self-view might not be quite so accurate. And so you come into interviews, sometimes talking about how much space you're feeling, how much space there is in your own being, or maybe not feeling quite so solid as you did before. Things seem a little unstable. I remember one retreat, that I was on early in my practice when I really wasn't sure the ground would hold me up. I thought if I put my foot down, it might just 
keep on going. Never did, but I wasn't sure about solidity. Or we become deeply aware of the complex machinations of the body, or noticing that everything is constantly changing and in flux, and nothing is staying still, and everything is arising and falling. And some of you have come in and said, the self I had yesterday is, seems to have utterly disappeared, and a new yogi got out of bed this morning. You know, something completely different. The whole thing. Sometimes it's been a happier one that got out of bed that day, and sometimes a not-so-happy one. So interesting, isn't it? How many, how many different students can one person be? So as we settle in, our views change and relax and open and clarify. And it, it becomes more so as our concentration deepens and we can go deeply into the nature of this experience. And I want you to know, as far as I know, nobody's failing. <laughs> you know? Every student that I have talked to is seeing something more deeply. Isn't that great? And I'll bet that's true for all the other teachers as well. I haven't asked, but I haven't heard about anybody who's failing. (laughs) So we begin to have a different view of what's happening here. Begin to see sometimes the nature and the origin of our suffering, or we see how everything really is changing, and we see that place where nothing solid can be found. So one of the biggest blocks to seeing what is is the identity, identity we have with our own personality. We get very identified with this personality. It's often called personality view or Sakya Diti in the Pali. <clears throat> so each of you knows who you are, you know? And you can tell us a lot about your families and your history and your kind of style of being in the world and how your body is doing and its problems and its good points. And, and, and you probably have some ideas about what's going to happen to you after the retreat. You probably also have some ideas about what's going to happen to you during the retreat. And so we have, we have this thing that we, is, we call me. And we start this so early, don't we? You, know, you, you play, we play games with children. You know, you have a little child who's just learning to talk, and an adult will say, "Who's that?" Pointing to the child, and then the child will say, "John," and you go, "Yay!" <laughs> or maybe the child says, "Donald," and you go, "Yay!" Because they've got it right, right? And so we're teaching them to, to, to have an identity. It's very handy. It's a good thing to have in the world of time and space. We, you, know, you want your children to know their names. <laughs> very good. But of course, we also sometimes want them to have a personality that fits what we hold them to be, you know? And, mm, you know, your parents want you to be really, really smart or they want you to be, you know, the kind of person who's really ambitious and wants to get wants to make a lot of money, or they have ideas of, as you get older about what your sexuality should be, and maybe it's not quite what they had in mind, and they might have themselves some fairly distorted notion about class or or those kinds of ethnicity questions, and that they want you to have a personality and the same views that they do. So there's a lot of struggle that happens early on around personality and as we develop. But in the end, no matter um, what your parents try to do and how successful or not they are, we do all develop a personality. And like I said, that sense of personality and identity is really useful in time and space. You know, it's nice to know your zip code and your phone number, and it's nice to know when you go out from the meditation hall which pair of shoes is yours, and it's a good idea if you know which room in the dorm is yours, and so that we are oriented in this time and space relative world. 
But of course the personality also sometimes has its drawbacks. It always has its drawbacks. And it's got neuroses and bad habits and unpleasant manifestations. And I don't know about you, but I can get really exasperated with my personality. And it really does feel like, oh, there she goes again, that Mary Grace, and repeating some form of suffering over and over and over again. Or sometimes we see here at the retreat where it gets in the way of our practice, you know, that place where we really do want the A grade at the retreat, you know. And we feel like everyone, you look around and the person next to you or in front of you or that you pass as you come to the hall is so quiet. And you know that they are way quieter than you are and probably almost enlightened. And, you know, and then that can feel a little like, oh, I'm just, I just can't do this well enough. So this personality actually creates a lot of problems. It creates nervousness at the beginning of a Dharma talk, you know. It's not a refuge, this personality thing. (laughs) It's not a refuge. The Dharma... It's not about ideas, it's about the way things are. And when we look closely enough, we begin to see that the, this personality, this sense of self, it, it's actually a bit like connecting the dots of several events. You know, those children's books that you used to get where you'd connect the dots and then there'd be a picture. So one of the lists on the, in the list of the Dhammas in the Four Foundations is that of the five aggregates. The Pali word for aggregate is kanda. So there's form, and there's our friend feeling, vedana, again. There's perception, there's mental formations, and there's consciousness. So these five things, sometimes they're called, sometimes they're likened to being heaps, sometimes they're likened to being baskets, Um, And these are the five aggregates of clinging. Um, And so they are temporarily together, the teaching is, and we identify with them. Sometimes I think of them as being like five rocks in a stream, and they're in a particular formation, you know, and then the stream makes an eddy around it, right? And so that eddy pretty much stays the same as long as those five rocks are in the same formation. But when the rocks get scattered, there's no eddy. So I was telling my husband on the phone the other night, Skype, we were Skyping, and I was telling him that I was going to give this talk. And he said, oh. And then he looked at me and grinned in his mischievous way, and he said, why are you like a helicopter? (laughs) I went, what? (laughs) He said, why are you like a helicopter? So, you know, I had to say, okay, why? And he said, because a helicopter is a collection of loose parts flying in formation. (laughs) So the Buddha actually made the same joke, except he said a chariot. Um, I realized later, as I was, again, doing some reading for this, he lived in a different time. You, like the helicopter, are a collection of loose parts flying in formation. And that formation calls itself you. But, of course, the problem is we think of the formation as being real, as being solid, and we hold on to it. This is why they're called the aggregates of clinging. These are the places where we really hold on. We create this notion of a solid and separate self. So when we begin to reflect on them and we begin to notice them, that's one of the places where we then also begin to deconstruct the sense of self. So, the first one is form. So form is the stuff of our being. It's the stuff of our being. It's the body. Anytime you are aware of the body, then you are contemplating this aggregate. So in our walking practice, in attention to the breath, in attention to body sensations, those are all um, reflections on on the aggregate of form. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Because 
if you begin to pay close attention, and many of you are, um, do you find any experience that is directly a foot? You know, that is in some real way the foot or the leg or the back. No matter what happens, you have all these sensations, but then we say, well, that's my foot. But none of those sensations is actually foot, you know. Each moment is a pain or an itch or warmth or, you know, um, burning. It's one sensation after another, experienced in a particular way, and we say, my back hurts. My back hurts. And we make it solid. We make it a thing. We reify it. And we identify with it. That's me. And then, of course, with this event of the body, we are really surprised when it's fragile and it changes. Sometimes really surprised. I look in the mirror sometimes now, if I'm just walking by a mirror, kind of casually, I go, that's my mother. (laughs) My mother's been dead for, you know, 18 years or something now, so, you know, it can't possibly be my mother. But for a moment, there's that, "Ah, it's my mother. And then I realize, no, it's not my mother, it's me, you know. Or I remember the moment in yoga class, downward facing dog, it was the last time I ever wore shorts to yoga. I walk down, I look back at my legs, and I go, whose legs are those? They can't possibly be my legs. You know, it was that, that sense of being identified with something that was not behaving in the way that I wanted to. And we cling, don't we? I mean, think of all the things we do to ourselves. Probably nobody in this room. But we do to ourselves to make ourselves, you know, a little younger, a little more interesting. We color our hair purple. We get lifted. We do this or that. Because we want to hold on to it. And we get so identified with it. And if it becomes ill or wounded, you know, we react, don't we? We react as though we've been pierced by a sword or an arrow. But then, of course, we, we double it, don't we? It's the second arrow teaching. That, so you've already, you're ill or you're wounded, and then in our reaction, in our indignation and our uh, fear, sometimes we create even more suffering, and we stick ourselves with the second arrow of all those stories about ourselves. So this form thing is the first of these aggregates. And then the second is the Vedana, the feeling tone. And I cannot stress enough how important this aggregate is. It is the the entire second foundation of mindfulness as well as being on this list. And it's the place in the teaching about the chain of dependent origination where we go around and around and around in cycles of suffering Sometimes it's understood to be many lifetimes, but even if you don't understand it that way, it makes huge sense in terms of the psychological cycles that we go through where we create suffering. And this is, one, this is a really weak link in that chain because it's every experience that we have has some sort of feeling tone, right? It's either pleasant, delicious, or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Every experience has that. And we solidify around it. And if it's pleasant, we really grab on, you know. We want more. And we start, immediately the mind goes off into cycles of, how can I get more? And if it's unpleasant, we push it away with aversion. And if it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, then sometimes we can get a little bored. And so, and then we're not paying attention. And so what we do with regard to this, um, this aggregate is it's the place where we can create so much more suffering. So it's very important to be mindful of it as we've been working at in the practice so that we, where we have the opportunity to just let it be what it is, no more. Just, it's just pleasant. You, know? you can enjoy the pleasantness, but without the grasping. Or it's just unpleasantness, and you can learn to be with what is unpleasant without the aversion. Why double your suffering? And 
If it's neutral, then we can practice really being with pres- present with something when we're not pushed and pulled by desire and aversion. So there's so much clinging around this particular aggregate. <clears throat> so the next of the aggregates is that of perception. And perception is the place where you name the experience that you're having. So again, it's useful in everyday life. You know, it's very nice to know that that thing that's moving towards you is a car. You know, that means then that has certain implications. And it's useful to know that um, that, you know, the, the smoky smell is a fire and maybe you might want to do something about it. But of course, sometimes um, our perceptions are inaccurate and they imprison ourselves. There's probably no one in this room. Maybe, there might be some. Some of you may be a little saner than I am. But, you know, all of us at one time or another in our life have heard a sound in the house at night. Right? What's that sound? <gasps> and, you know, you lie in bed, you quake. And, um, and if you're little, you probably really quaked. I did. And then you go, oh, I know there's someone down there, you know, or it's a rat or it's something really awful. And so you get this whole story going about this sound and you know what it is, you know. Maybe it's not even downstairs. Maybe it's under your bed, which is really scary if you're little. And then, you know, the moment comes, mom or dad comes in if you're little or you turn on the light or you go and investigate and you find out, is it a person walking around downstairs? No. You know, sometimes it's branches on the outside of the house rubbing. Sometimes it's the dog walking around. Different things it can be. But the perception that said a person walking around was not the accurate perception. We name our body, body, as though it were solid. And it's not. We name... Um, Countries, you know, this is the United States, or that's Mexico, or France, or, you know. And we all probably remember, well, some of you might be young enough that you don't, when the first astronauts were up and they saw the planet from off the planet, and they realized it's one planet. There are no countries It's just beautiful, beautiful, blue and brown and green and white sphere hanging there in space. And it's all one planet. Countries are, you know, it's a name. It's it's a place where we create a lot of concepts. So we create notions of ownership with our perceptions, you know. And you could imagine, and in fact this was done once, so I'll tell you the story. One year, some years ago, there was a Dharma teacher who was um, coming to teach in the circuit around, who had some, you know, every now and then he'd have sort of an interesting idea about how to teach. And at one retreat, he decided that it would be good if everybody mixed it up around where they sat. So nobody, you couldn't claim your cushion for yourself. And people could come in and just sit on any cushion in the room at any sit. Well, <laughs> you can imagine, right? There were some people that were so upset and so indignant that someone was in their space that he finally had to relent and let those people put their names on their cushions so that no one would sit there. We, that, that little piece of territory that's yours, that's important in a retreat, isn't it? We, and we do this. We create concepts about age and race and gender, where all these places where when we use naming unconsciously. And it's interesting, we really cling to this aggregate because we get nervous when we don't know what the name of something is. And it's a very interesting place to explore in your practice. You know, sometimes if you're sitting and there's a sound, sometimes it's possible when we get quiet enough, you don't know what the sound is. And you can see the mind wanting to go, what is it, what is it, what is it, and name it. But if you can kind of hold that back and not go with that and just let the hearing be just the hearing, 
it's just hearing. That's all. Or it's just the sensation. You know? Sometimes I've learned never to use the note pain in my practice because pain immediately brings all kinds of stories and reactivity, doesn't it? So if I'm working with just even sensation or burning or throbbing or something like that, there's not so much reactivity and it's closer to the direct experience. It's just, you know, some of these things are just unpleasant or pleasant experiences in the field of awareness. So that brings us to mental formations. So there are so many events that arise in the mind. This is not news to you. And it's really important to say, you know, there's long, long lists of all the different kinds of states and things that can happen. I'm not going to do that tonight. Um, But probably the most important thing to say is that there are wholesome states that arise, sometimes called the beautiful states of mind. And um, there are unwholesome ones. So, you know, you know the list. There's anger and, and delusion and desire and kindness and all of the many stories and thoughts and emotions that arise and that wrap themselves around our experience and create intentions and more actions and sort of perpetuate the cycle of suffering. These all come up in the mind and we identify with them. You know, and we say, don't we, I'm angry. I'm angry. Or I'm happy. Or I'm sad or tired or sick or I'm blissful. And that's just the languaging of it identifies us. And it's a very interesting experiment to begin to flip it around and say things like, here is anger. Because that's not I am, is it? It's here is anger. It's just here. It immediately gives us a little more space. Or here is sickness. Or here is fatigue. Or here is bliss. And then it's much easier to sit with it, not to get so attached when it's pretty yummy, and not to get so averse when it's not. One of the most important of the mental formations is that of volition. Joseph Goldstein in his book talks about that as the chief of staff of the mind, is is volition. So this is the factor that creates intention and that directs our actions in certain ways and that's what creates the karmic consequences of our actions. And a long time ago, some teacher gave me the image of, you know, you can take a knife and you can stab someone in a moment of anger and the karma is um, not good. <laughs> and you can take a knife and you can cut into someone because you are a surgeon and you want to help them and heal them. And it's very different karma. It's the same thing. It's a knife sticking into someone, but the volition behind it is very different. And then the last of the aggregates is that of knowing. And John talked this morning about the one who knows, that, that place of, of that which knows um, what is. <clears throat> and, um, you know, there's hearing and the knowing of hearing, seeing and the knowing of seeing, smelling and the knowing of smelling, tasting and the knowing of tasting, touching and the knowing of tasting, and mental objects and the knowing of them. That's all. That's Bahia again, isn't it? That's what we have. And it's interesting because there's a way in which there's a sense of the knowing is always there, And even when we are not mindful of it, um, there's a way in which we kind of, you know, you know that there are many, many people in this room and you know that the statues are up on the altar and there's a knowing even when these things are in the background. But when we are mindful, that's the place where it gets really clear, you know, and then it's the knowing of the seeing itself or the, of the um, whatever other sense door, um, So none of these aggregates is self. None of them are self. But we take the group. We take that whole group. Form, Vedana, perception, mental formations, consciousness, and we say, that's me. That's the helicopter. That's me. Those things flying in formation. And that's a convention. 
that's that place, you know, that constellation up in the sky that we call the Big Dipper, right? Big Dipper is also connect the dots, isn't it? Is there a Big Dipper up there? There's not. Those stars aren't anywhere near close to each other. They're not a Big Dipper, you know? Or one that I've always loved. We have the conventional map of the world, right? And you know that map, you know? Canada, the United States, South America, Europe, Africa, Russia, China, you know, the whole thing. Australia's kind of down at the bottom. North Pole. So once I went into, I think it was at the Exploratorium, and I went in, and I walked into a room that had a lot of maps, and there was this map. And it had the South Pole at the top. And then, you know, under the South Pole, there was Australia and Africa, and then Europe was kind of down here, and South America. And, you know. So it was astounding. I understand that they sell those down in New Zealand, actually, which makes total sense. But it really caused me to think about how much the concepts of a particular image of the world have affected us. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? If you're, it's better to be on the top, right? Europe, the United States, Africa, uh, South America, it's difficult down there. And you get that sense that the top is better and the bottom is somehow less so. And it's, it's there in our thinking and it's not helpful. And to take it and, and actually, up, you know, the, North, the South Pole at the top, that's just another concept, right? Maybe it's sideways because after all, space is space and there's nothing that says that the North Pole's on top and the South's on the bottom. It could be, they could be spinning around this way. So it's just interesting to begin to see how these concepts that we've carried around and, and reified and made, you know, so solid. Or the time change the other day. Time. <laughs> Did the birds have a time change? <laughs> you know? No, you know, they just continue doing what they do. The time didn't change, but we, how many announcements did we have and little signs and, you know, this whole thing about how to make something solid. When the monks chant in the monastery, almost every day, they say, form is not self, feeling is not self, Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. When I've been there and then heard them chanting that, it is fierce and relentless. It's actually almost frightening. These things are not self. And over and over and over they chant it. We know that this assemblage is impermanent. We've all had experiences of how life can turn really suddenly and somebody is very ill and then they're gone or maybe there's not even that time, they're just gone. None of us likes the notion that we will sicken and age and die and we resist often the practices that encourage us to face it, which is why we need the practices. You know, I'm currently watching an elderly member of my husband's family move towards her death with great difficulty because she's so unwilling to acknowledge that it's going to happen. And she's terrified. She didn't even write a will until she was in her late 80s and then they made her do it. You know, so there's just, it's so hard when we won't even look at the reality, reality of our impermanence. This personality is a set of conditioned arisings all coming together for a short period of time to make an appearance in time and space, as you. It's a habit to be you. That's one way to say it. And interestingly enough, you know, it's not the personality that gets enlightened. If you get enlightened, whatever that is, you will still have some of your same personality. Jack used to like to say, you know, if you're weird, then you're going to be weird and enlightened. And <clears throat> but the nice thing is you won't be so identified with the, with the weirdness. You'll know that it's not you. And it's been interesting to me, you know, one of the things they say about the Dalai Lama is the Dalai Lama is, is the Bodhisattva, he's the incarnation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. That would be a pretty interesting thing to get identified with and probably could cause a lot of difficulty, actually. 
And the amazing thing about him is he realizes that's just, it could be another identification. He says, I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. I think what he does is he takes that as his job description. You know, his job description is to be the bodhisattva of, of <laughs> compassion. And I actually think that would be, we could all do that, you know, if we all took it on as a job description, the world would probably be a better place. So I want to tell you one of my favorite Zen stories. Um, <clears throat> it's, a ko- it's one of the most basic Zen koans, and I just love it because it kind of knocks my socks off. So this is about the Emperor Wu. Hmm. And the Emperor Wu lived in China around the 12th or 13th century, and um, he, he was really interested in being a spiritual seeker, and he tried really hard different, you know, to get teachings, but he never felt like they were really authentic, you know, and I guess if you're the emperor, probably, you know, somebody, some Vipassana teacher comes in, you probably try to make nice to the emperor, right? You don't really tell him, you know, that he has to shape up and let go of his identity as the emperor. So he just kept looking, and and one day he walked into um, a room at his court, and there amongst all the people, and at that time, the Chinese people were often not so tall. And there was this really tall, red-haired, blue-eyed man. And he kind of went, because <laughs> he could tell there was something interesting about this man. And um, so, you know, he, he asked him, he said, well, you know, what about the merit that from doing all these good things, you know, that he'd done as an emperor. And this man said, no merit. And there were a couple of other questions. And then the emperor was quite impressed because obviously this person was sort of like to say no merit to the emperor for doing all these things that he had done. And finally he looked at this man and he said, who are you standing there? And the man, who was the great Zen sage Bodhidharma, said, I haven't got a clue. And the emperor was totally blown away and kind of, you know, his head whirled. And when he kind of came to, Bodhidharma was gone and he never saw him again. But the emperor's life changed, actually. And every now and then he'd go off and be in a monastery for a while and scrub toilets and and just be the servant for the monks. And then after a while, the court would decide they needed him back, and they'd go get him, bring him back. So, who are you sitting there? You could try. I don't know. It's a really interesting practice, actually, every now and then. Just try it. Try it and kind of mean it. Like, maybe you really don't know. And let that guide you. Rodney Smith says, simply stated, spiritual practice makes the unconscious somebody, the conscious nobody. (laughs) So, So, you know, we go into our experience to see what we can see. There aren't any special secret teachings. You've got them all. I used to think that there would be, you know, and actually in my very earliest years of practice, some of the retreats down at Yucca Valley, Jack would meet with the senior students. But I knew him a little bit, and, and he invited me to come, and I always went because I thought maybe they were getting the special secret teachings. <laughs> but, you know, there aren't any. We just see more and more clearly, and you hear the teachings deeper and deeper at deeper levels. And so we begin to see. We see the three characteristics that John talked of, of impermanence and suffering, and the lack of a permanent and substantial self, we begin to see how to step out of this personality view. And we see that it is a prison and it's not a refuge. And we see that who knows what it is that we're part of. We're part of this thing that is a, we, we say it's a cosmos evolving through billions of years. And life is evolving through, you know, billions, millions of years. And we don't, we have no idea what comes next. You know, we like to think we're the end product. I doubt it, right? Who knows what comes next? We're part of a huge, huge process. We don't know what it is. It's really a mystery. But this not knowing 
opens up so many possibilities. So a quote from Ajahn Chah, somebody mentioned it to me in an interview the other day, and it's one I've always loved. He says, your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So Ajahn Sumedho says, waking up is just a simple, imminent act of attention. Open, relaxed, listening, being here and now. So in this act of attention, when we're really deeply present, with the requisite conditions for focus and concentration, we begin to see flow and process and change and no solidity. And we begin to understand that trying to find refuge in the personality to fix it up so that it's perfect, that's not a very big refuge. It's not much of a refuge at all. And refuge in not knowing, refuge in a much bigger view, it's kind of what I think of as refuge in the big. This is refuge in what is, and it's not refuge in the personality. And it comes when we're able to recognize the process that happens that creates a personality rather than um, getting caught in solidifying it and getting lost in its happening in its habits. So a couple of things to read. Angelus Silesius, so this this awareness is present in other traditions, says, God whose love and joy are present everywhere can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. And Kala Rinpoche says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you'll, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now, in a minute I'm going to suggest that we breathe together. Notice that as I say that, you might want to change your posture to move into an identity of a good meditator. (laughs) And I would like to invite you not to do that and to just stay where you are and let the meditation for just a moment come to you as we breathe together. May all beings be happy and peaceful and come to a complete end of suffering. Thank you so much for listening.